I was having lunch with a pastor friend this last week, and one of those restaurants where the tables are all close together, where you're actually having lunch with other people, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, one of those places, and I was talking to him about the sermon I preached last Sunday about God's grace, and, and obviously the other guy was listening. When he finished his lunch, he came by our table and said, it's so refreshing to hear a message of grace being preached in a church. He said, where do you, are you pastors? Yeah, I'm the pastor at First Baptist on the Square. And he said, well, aren't you afraid? He, said, he was joking, halfway joking, I think. He said, aren't you afraid that if you preach on grace, that your people will stop tithing? And he walked away, ha-ha, laughing. I thought to myself, I've never really thought about that before. Is grace that dangerous of a message to preach. If I preach on grace, is that a theme that's going to lead God's people to not want to obey Him? So I thought about something this morning. In light of the sermon, I want to illustrate for you this, this idea of, of grace, how it, I guess, could be misunderstood and misapplied. I want you to imagine this morning that you, when you entered in, you all got a credit card. And it was given to you by First Baptist Church. And we were covering everything that you would spend. There's no limit to what you could spend. <clears throat> and whatever you bought, you wouldn't have to pay back. How would that go, you think? I don't know if it would go real well. If it were me getting that card with kind of unlimited spending, no, not having to pay it back, it could get pretty ugly, actually, as we indulged ourselves in that way. <clears throat> I would say this about grace. If grace is misunderstood and misapplied or misused, it can cause problems. In Romans 5.20, the Apostle Paul talks about where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it was as if Paul anticipated the argument that would be used against him about God's grace increasing as sin increased. He, he anticipated, and Paul often does this in his letters, he anticipated the argument that would be brought against him. This idea of, a, of unlimited grace means a free license to sin. So Paul gives us in Romans 6, every Bible's turned there, in Romans 6, Paul actually gives us his response. I love Paul's writings. Paul has that legal mind of a scholar and he anticipates people's questions before they even ask him those questions. He is imagining, thinking as he's writing this letter that people are going to assume perhaps, maybe, that this unlimited grace that keeps expanding with our sin, that this unlimited grace would lead to a license to keep on sinning. Look at Romans 6, 1 and 2. Very important verses. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? And that's a very strong Greek word there, <clears throat> by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? After World War II... A man named J.B. Phillips, he was a British clergyman, was working with young people in England. And he found that many of those youth were struggling to understand 
the translation of Scripture that they had. So he started this endeavor to translate the New Testament into modern English. He finished by 1958. He has a translation of the New Testament just called the Phillips Translation. It's marvelous. I love how he takes Romans 6.1. This is how he translates it. Philip says, Now what is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God. Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? Here's what I believe. If we have truly tasted and experienced the grace of God in its fullness, I don't believe that what I just read will be the way that we will respond. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee to dine with that leading religious leader, a Pharisee. And there was a woman who was known in town as a sinful woman. She shows up uninvited at the house. No one invited her And she goes in, and they're having a meal, and what does she do? She anoints the feet of Jesus with perfume and with her tears, and with her hair, she dries his feet. And that Pharisee who had invited Jesus was sitting there watching her do this and was thinking to himself, if this man was truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus responds by giving kind of a parable or quick illustration. And then he says these words to her in Luke 7. He says these words to the Pharisee, that is. Because she had been forgiven much, she loved much. And he says, those who've been forgiven little, love little. If God's grace is for real, if it really is true, That because of what Jesus did for me on that cross, that all my sins are forgiven, that there's nothing I could do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I could do to make God love me less. If that is true, really true, then I have been forgiven much. And if we believe that we've been forgiven much and we experience and live in God's everlasting forgiveness, mercy, and grace, how can we not love the Lord with all of our heart? Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll put this statement in your sermon insert. I believe I did. If not, I'm gonna, I think it's going to be projected on the screen. If we don't love God with all our heart, it's because we haven't really received, accepted, or believed in His perfect love for us. Now listen, we're all going to fall short of even, love, of, of even loving God with all of our hearts. But if we don't have a sincere love for God, 
I believe it's simply because we haven't really received or accepted or believed in His perfect love for us. When we're gripped by His love, His love will control us in a beautiful way. So that deep down, we do not want to send to our heart's content so we can see how far we can exploit the grace of God. We're not going to want to do that if His love has touched us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 14 through 15. Now I know some translations use the word compel instead of control. This is the ESV. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What a marvelous gospel set of verses for us to know. Many translations do take verse 14 to say the love of Christ compels us. Either way, compel or control, it's a strong Greek word. But it's the love of Jesus that compels us, that controls us. It's the love of Jesus, the one, this verse says, who died for all, that then leads us to die. Die to what? Die to self. Die to pride. Die to having it our way. It's His grace. It's God's unmerited favor. It's His love that will motivate us to die to self. That's what these verses are teaching. And that if you are being controlled or compelled by the love of God, you and I, we won't live any longer for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised for us. That's the idea of this message. I believe that God's amazing grace should be our greatest motivation. It should be the greatest motivation of our lives. God's grace, His love, unmerited favor for us. And as you and I die to self, we will experience the joy of His grace. Now turn over to Romans chapter 12. This sermon is going to be hopping around, all right? Uh, last two weeks we were in Ephesians 3, then in Matthew 20, we're kind of hopping around. Because I wanted to really kind of look at this idea of is grace really a license to sin? I mean, that, that question kind of haunted me all week long. I knew it wasn't, but I, I got in God's Word, and I love learning what God says. So Romans chapter 12, if you turn there, Romans 12, if you've read the book of Romans before, something significant happens in chapter 12. There's a shift. It's like the whole book really kind of changes. It moves toward... Uh, the practical in such a wonderful way. The first 11 verses, Paul very systematically, logically lays out how all of us are under condemnation because of our sin. He gives what Christ has done for us in chapter 3. You walk through chapter by chapter. He even talks about human freedom and God's sovereignty, all these lofty theological themes. But you come to chapter 12 and there's a change, there's a shift Romans 12, 1, 
Paul makes his appeal in this verse by the mercies of God. Look there at verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I cannot tell you how many times I have read that verse, even used it, taught, preached, counseled from it, and I've just sort of glossed over the therefore and the by the mercies of God. And just jumped right into, present yourself, surrender yourself to God. And it's like, I just completely ripped that verse out of context. Paul says, therefore, in a lot of everything I have said about the universal sin of all people, and of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, in light of that, it's by the mercy of God then that we present ourselves to God. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, writes these words. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life-giving spirit, and in making them his children. That's a, that's a marvelous summary of the first 11 chapters of Romans, by the way. That's the gospel. It's the mercy of God, which brings us to, I guess, our main truth this morning, and it's this. God's grace is our greatest motivation to live a transformed life, fully surrendered to the Lord. And listen, that's the goal. That's the goal for your staff, for our own lives, for this church, is that we would live transformed. I'm at a place in my life, in ministry, that really all I care about now as I preach and lead you, I want to see lives transformed. I want to see people touched by the love of God and lives transformed, fully surrendered to God growing as disciples, obeying him. That's all I want to see happen in my life and in your life. That's what I want. What's going to make that happen? Yes, the move of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God, absolutely. Yes, the preaching of the gospel, yes. But God's grace must be that motivation. In the Old Testament, people brought sacrifices. To worship meant you brought something that you would give up to worship God. Romans 12.1 says, By the mercy of God, we are to present ourselves. We're to be living sacrifices. We are to bring ourselves to God. And it's a natural response to the mercy of God to completely surrender. Grant Osborne writes in his commentary, The total commitment of ourselves to God is based on the totality of His mercy to God. Us. When you and I think about people who have given it all, people who have surrendered and laid everything down, I know what I think about. I think about missionaries. Missionaries who sell all they have, go to another country, and then give their lives for the sake of the gospel. One of those great missionaries throughout history was a man named David Livingstone. Livingstone. He, he was British, and he 
went deeper into Africa. Livingstone did. He went deeper into Africa at that time than any missionary had ever gone. This was in the 19th century. He had experienced terrible disease. He'd been attacked by lions. He had been rejected by people. He, he's this hero of the faith. And he writes in his journal these words. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then. With a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. Those are very honest words. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. In light of what Jesus did for him, he could say, what I have done for the majority of my life was truly not even a sacrifice. You see how the motivation of God's love and mercy and grace lit a fire in his life to fully surrender to God and be transformed by God. Now last week I wanted to show you a movie clip, but I ran out of time. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we would watch different Christmas movies in our home. And one of those movies was the 1984 version of A Christmas Carol where George C. Scott plays Ebenezer Scrooge, Mr. Bah Humbug himself, who has no use for charity, no use for Christmas. He's a miser. This guy is pathetic. He's pitiful. And the story is of how these, these Christmas spirits or ghosts come to him in the night and show him his past and show him the present and show him his future and he wakes up a transformed man from that experience. I want to show you about a one minute clip. It, it, my favorite part of the whole movie. It's at the end of the movie where his faithful, humble, loyal employee Bob Cratchit is a few minutes late because it's Christmas Day. I want you to see how transformed Ebenezer Scrooge is and the grace that he now extends upon Bob. Let's watch it together. Do you know what time it is? Yes, sir. What time is it? 18 minutes past the hour, sir. 18 and a half minutes past the hour. What do you mean? coming here at this time of day. I'm sorry, sir. I am behind my time. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you will, please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, my friend, I'm not going to stand for this any longer. Therefore, therefore, I am going to Double your salary. 
double my salary, sir. Yes, Bob. Yes, Bob. A Merry Christmas to you. I'll double. <laughs> he goes on to say that your son will walk again, and it's just an amazing transformation. And it went so well last week with the, the employer, the landowner, paying out you know, to his workers. It was a perfect illustration. I ran out of time. But it works this week as well because there is a joy when grace touches us. I thought to myself, why does Ebenezer respond the way he does? I think two reasons. First, he learns the truth about himself and about the world around him. Even Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. When he realizes his past, his present, his future, that reality of truth sets him free. But secondly, I believe he was touched by grace himself. In the story, the third of the Christmas ghosts of spirits, the one of Christmas future, last leaves Ebenezer in his own grave. That spirit leaves him and he wakes up thinking he's in his grave and he's in his bed and he's alive and it's Christmas morning. He got a second chance. He received mercy. He didn't deserve a second chance. He'd been a miser his whole life. He had been a man who chose to be selfish, yet he got a second chance of grace and it empowered him and transformed his life. You know, it's a lie, church, to believe that too much grace will give us a license to sin. The truth is this from God's word, that when we're under grace, sin loses its power in our lives. Look at Romans 6.14. Romans 6.14. Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law but under grace. Here's the lie. When you and I think that we can work harder and outperform to live the victorious Christian life, then sin will eat us for lunch. But when we're under grace, that our sins are covered, that Jesus is for us and not against us, it gives us this supernatural power even over sin. So God's grace is our greatest motivation to live a transformed life, fully surrendered to the Lord. Second big truth, our need for grace doesn't end upon our being born again. It doesn't stop there. Look at Galatians 3.3. From the NIV. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Now, I use the 84 version of NIV. That's the modern NIV. I like the 84 version. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Listen, we're not, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by any human effort. We quoted Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 just a few moments ago. We're saved by grace, but why do we let grace stop there? And then try to live our own lives as Christians by our own efforts. We're all guilty. Listen, we preachers are guilty of preaching that kind of message. This past Wednesday, I was concerned about our Bible study because I want that to be interactive. And as I looked at my lesson and my handout, I thought, man, I've not built in a lot of questions. I wonder if it's just going to be me trying to 
lecture and not getting any, listen, oh, it was so different. Everybody was talking, interacting, asking questions, even interrupting me in a good way. It was good. It was great, robust discussion. And I was emphasizing the need that we're to love one another. And I made this statement. I said, it starts with us. And then a gentleman there said, actually, pastor, it doesn't start with us. He said, it starts with God and his love for us. And he was absolutely right. It's so easy as a pastor, as a preacher say, this is what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this. But it must begin first with God and his love and his grace for us. Jerry Bridges, if you want to read a couple of books on grace, I've quoted from What's So Amazing by Grace by Philip Yancey last week. And I want to highly recommend Jerry Bridges' book. It used to be called The Discipline of Grace. The new title is Transforming Grace. Two quotes from it. He says, We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul, but by the grace of God I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is God helps those who help themselves. Second quote from him. He says, We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. That's why Peter can write in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We, we, we kind of follow that idea of I'm growing in knowledge of who Jesus is. But if all the grace we get is at salvation, then we're on our own. We can't grow in it. But no, we're said to grow in the grace of God. How then do we grow? Four quick applications how do we grow in this amazing grace that is freely given to us? Number one, go to the throne of grace. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Go to the throne of grace. Verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because of what Jesus has done for us by going before us, through the cross, through his resurrection. He is our high priest. That means God's throne for us as Christians is not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. And we're welcome at his throne because as 1 Peter 5.10 says, God is the God of all grace. Isaiah 30.18, look at this. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. You and I can go directly to the place to receive the grace that we need. It's the throne of God, the throne of grace. Number two, we're to receive the word of grace. 
We learn what grace means by receiving the word of God. Look at Acts 20, 32. This is when Paul is giving words to the Ephesians elders. It's his parting words to them. Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. God sustains us by his grace, and we discover his grace in his word. R.C.H. Linsky writes, God and the word of his grace always go together. God lets his grace flow out through his word. His grace flows through his word. Receive the word of grace. Three, repent of pride and humble yourself under God. 1 Peter 5, 5b through 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's something about pride. Self-sufficiency. God says, I'm opposed to that. But I give grace to the humble. Four, remain in God's love Preach the gospel of grace to yourself. In John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is, Jesus says, remain in my love. Jude 1, 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Of God. How? By preaching the gospel of Jesus to ourselves every day. Every day. You wake up and say, God, I don't deserve your grace today. I'm going to probably sin today. But you love me unconditionally. You sent your son to save me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins, Lord Jesus. I want to serve you today because of your grace. I turn from my sin. I humble myself before you, God. Every day we walk in that grace. We live in that grace. It's not a work. It's a response. It's called repentance. It's changing our human performance model legalistic view of Christianity because we all have it. The majority of people in this country, if I were to ask them if they believed in God and heaven and they said yes, how do you get there? They say, just live a good life. Just live a good life. And God will let me in. That is works-based. And it's just kind of the fabric of our humanity to think if I do X, Y, and Z, then I earn God's favor. That is not grace. Grace is us receiving so much more than what we deserve. It's God loving us no matter what we do. It's amazing. So this morning, I just want to challenge you as we come to sing our final song of response. I want to speak 
This morning, you cannot live a life of grace if you haven't entered into a saving relationship with Jesus. This morning, the gospel is that there's nothing you could do to earn God's favor. This morning, you could come to the cross of Jesus as you are and have your sins forgiven forever. How is that just? How is that fair? How is that right? It's only just because God put your sin and my sin upon his son on that cross. Paid in full. It's so freeing, church. Listen, church people can become... It's like when you get a shot, right? A vaccination, you get an immunization to try to protect you from a disease. My biggest fear is that people have heard the gospel so much, yet not received the truth of Jesus, that they think they're okay, but they're not. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been in this church, if you know that you are not saved by grace, if you think that you're going to get to heaven by what you do and how you live, you need Jesus to save you this morning. You come. We'll rejoice. Nobody will judge you. Your coming might spur someone else to come and receive Jesus.